I'm teaching right now in the graduate psychology program. So my students are all college graduates who have their own careers in a variety of fields. And the conversations we're able to have about how a certain psychological principle bears itself out in a business or in a hospital or in daily life and to make those connections. So it just adds a high level of richness. The Digital to Learn podcast is dedicated to exploring both what's new and what's good in the use of technology in teaching and learning. Our mission is to have the best minds sitting in front of our microphones, sharing evidence-based strategies for digital teaching and learning. Digital to Learn is brought to you by the Center for Learning and Innovation at Indiana Wesleyan University. Thank you for joining us. And now, the Digital to Learn podcast. Greetings and welcome back to the Digital to Learn podcast. This is Brad Garner. Welcome back to the Digital to Learn podcast. Uh, This is Brad Garner, usually the host. Today I'm a guest. And joining me today will be our producer, Mike Jones, who's going to step out from behind the curtain from his role as a producer and join in this conversation. Welcome, Mike. Thanks, Brad. Thanks for having me. All right, let's jump back into these questions. Last week was super fascinating. Let's see what you got for us this week. So the process of transmitting onto devices that already existed in people's homes, which yep. is radio. There was, yep. I'm assuming at this point in time, good coverage of radio receivers. Yes. Allowed distance learning to happen over a medium that was already in these homes. So there wasn't this extra additional expense. It was already there, which is, I think right. is important for us to remember even today as we look at how we modify and look at things like the metaverse and virtual reality and those types of things that require devices that are becoming more and more common in households now. Yep. So where's the radio story go? So then we go to television. Next logical step. And again, once television is invented, the 50s are called the golden age of television. People begin to buy televisions and have them in their homes. One quick stat. In 1948, four-tenths of one percent of homes in America had a television set. Wow. 10 years later, that same figure is 83.4%. Yeah. So it really is a gigantic leap. And televisions now replace radios as the primary form of entertainment in the homes. So we began to see universities step forward and secure licenses to be television networks, basically. Right. Happened at Iowa State, University of Michigan, number of different universities got into that game very early. And again, the government stepped in and said, oh, wait a minute, we, we're not sure we want you doing this independently of, of what we do. So they put a freeze on any future television licenses. Wow. And television is, is kind of a story of people saying, This strategy, this tool, this technology has the greatest potential, but it never really quite lived up to people's expectations. There are various stories of different state-level operations. 
but nothing really captured the imagination of folks at a level to make it worthwhile. And if you think about having to produce every week, let's say 40 hours of new content and the level of effort that would take. Yeah, significant. Uh, so you think about different age levels, different subject matters. And the other thing they discovered was if they do a live television show and you don't happen to be in the same time zone, it's kind of lost because <laughs> they really didn't have any way to record it. Mm -hmm. So television kind of did itself in, I think, as a strategy over a period of time. It just was not that productive and was highly expensive to produce. Yeah, I would think that there would have been a value in, say, the passive learning in both mediums, radio and TV, right? Where you hear, even today, you hear an ad about something. You could consider that to be passive learning. You're just listening. You hear it twice. You hear it three times. You hear it four times. All of a sudden, you go, oh, I need to repair my carpet. I should call 1-800-REPAIR-MY-CARPET. You know, it's that passive repetition type learning that I think those mediums were probably pretty good for, but not when it comes to assessed academic study. So Absolutely. they would shoot themselves in the foot. Absolutely. And if you're learning a subject that has a lot of complexity to it, who do you ask if you have questions? How do you get additional help if you need it? Mm -hmm. And if they're doing live programming, if you don't catch it the first time, you're out of luck. Yeah, so yeah. those strategies didn't work well. And as I was thinking about radio and television, I was thinking also about podcasts today and how those have become such a huge part of our culture. But again, you can listen to a podcast over and over again if you want to. Yeah, yeah. And a lot of people do. So you've got, you know, conferences, how to be more confident, how to this, how to that, self-improvement type podcasts that I think do get listened to over and over you know, when I was coming up, I had cassette tapes of a master sales course. Yeah. And I wore three of those tapes out, listening to them over and over again, because they were such good information. And it was so dense to try them, you know, to try the techniques, learn from it, go back, listen again. Same thing today. I think we have these things on repeat. You've got your entertainment, like maybe an audio book that's just purely for a fantasy read or sci-fi or, or something that entertains us that we bide our time with. But then you also have podcasts that teach you something like digital to learn and other podcasts in the genre where we're talking about strategies you can implement. And so that becomes a passive, almost correspondence type learning through just an audio medium. So it's, it's fascinating how the concepts are continuing to roll out in every medium that we have. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So I grew up watching Sesame Street and the electric company, and I could still sing some of the uh, adjective <laughs> conjunction songs of the bill on the White House lawn. You know, so as a kid, I was learning from those things at the time because it was entertainment. I didn't realize it. Watching those now, I look at how much ethics are conveyed in those types of yeah. shows, how yeah. much there was learning, but there was always seemed to be a threat of the current political situation. So talking about TV 
reaching into those things. You had mentioned in some of your writing, I think the electric company in Sesame Street. So what else was happening? And do you have any more information about those? I mean, and those two are the shining examples of what could be done. And I'm sure there are millions of kids across the country now who are adults who grew up on Sesame Street and the electric company and the lessons that were being taught there. So that, that is probably the one great example of someone taking television and producing high quality programs, again, that, that are recorded and that can be repeated. I'd be anxious to know the, the budgetary story behind those two shows. Now they were supported by public broadcasting, but still a tremendous impact on our culture. Probably the single best example of television programming that did that. Absolutely. So what else happened with distance learning using television? Well, television kind of just fizzled out after that. There were some efforts of Glenn Jones, who created Jones International University. And they had their own television network. And then students would submit their assignments and contact their faculty by telephone. So again, we look at that today and we think, wow, that's really kind of cumbersome. You're, you're mailing out assignments you're doing a television show and the faculty are talking to their students over the telephone. But as cumbersome as, as that may have been, it really laid the foundation for what we're doing today. Mm-hmm. Even though we send things out electronically, we have uh, learning management systems that house video content and then the faculty can interact with their students over Zoom. So just a a huge upgrade from what we were doing in those old days, but the same principles applied. Or they should. I think a lot of what's missing in online video teaching and learning nowadays is the story element, right? So TV was meant to entertain. If it wasn't entertaining, you turn the channel off. It's not so easy to turn off videos in a course that we have now online on the internet but that doesn't mean we shouldn't be looking at making those videos entertaining. And if Absolutely. we can teach with storytelling, I mean, that's what that medium is perfect for. And the internet, which we're going to talk about next, there's so many roads you can go down when you think about online learning and delivery models. So what do you have for us there? One, one more comment, I think, on the television era that you mentioned, and that is that people either consciously or unconsciously watch these educational programs, which I think were largely a talking head standing behind a podium, right, talking about something, and would turn those on and say, well, this isn't nearly as entertaining as the Ed Sullivan show, <laughs> and they'd move on. So it was hard for them to compete. And again, going back to Electric Company and Sesame Street, they had high quality production standards. Everything was done with such pizzazz that it did compete. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think we have to evaluate the amount of time we spend with that type of media. I mean, after everything you watch, if you take a pause and just ask yourself, so what did I learn? Even if it's a movie, I think there's things we can learn. But then there's some stuff that's just pure entertainment, like, you know, watching a video feed of people being scared, you know, and you laugh, ha, 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 but... I mean, are you learning how to scare someone or are you just doing it because you're bored and wanting entertainment compared to learning? But there are some films that I watch. 
I might walk away with having learned an ethical lesson or looking at something and the way I view the world a little differently because of the message conveyed in the movie. As a filmmaker, I might walk away learning, oh, that was a cool lighting technique or how did they move the camera like that? You and I were talking before the show about something that occurred over video correspondence, if you will, at your church. Yeah. It looked like your pastor was on the stage, but he was miles away somewhere else. Absolutely. And that type of thing, I think we we have so many different levels that we can learn using video or using the internet, but really what matters? What What is it? Where's the connection between entertainment and learning um, in, in a way that's done well? And of course, I'm exploring that now, doing some course videos for uh, another company here that's partnering with IWU. But it's a constant question in my mind. It's how do I write this learning so that it's also entertaining and not boring? And then how are we going to deliver it today and a year from now, five years from now, 10 years from now? And at the other end of that continuum, is it possible for that same content to be almost too entertaining? Yeah. To lose the message in, in favor of just being good, clean fun. Sure. I think we see that in video games. You know, I yeah. always look at the example of Guitar Hero. If they had made the controller different, they probably could have taught an entire generation how to play a guitar That's with true. that game. <laughs> you know, I mean, I look at the talent. If you watch some Guitar Hero competitions, what they're doing with that controller is mind-bending but they couldn't pick up a guitar to save their life. <laughs> That's a great example. Great example. So as you look forward in this latter part of the podcast, how do you connect what we learned from dis distance learning through correspondence and the radio to TV to the internet today and, and what we're doing? What's, what's good and what carried forward and what should we get rid of? I think one of the themes that that kind of winds its way through the story is the student. On the one hand, you had folks figuring out how to deliver the content through a postcard or a radio show or a television program or on the internet. But I think there was always a, an underlying concern about the student. Mm -hmm. How are they doing? Now, again, one of the, the shortcomings of all of that had been, how do you really measure that progress? How do you really know if they're benefiting from this? And those are questions people continued to ask. There was one story of a television-based university, and they were accredited by the Higher Learning Commission. And faculty around the country just threw up their hands and said, this isn't really education. And there are a lot of things that have been written kind of on the edge of each of these different eras where people are saying, where are we going? What's going to be next? You know, we're going to be doing virtual learning at some point, and that's not really learning. So those kinds of arguments just continue to crop up over the span of this whole history. I think from students and faculty. Yes, absolutely. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I find it interesting as you were talking there, it brought to mind like you were saying how the government kind of took over the communications of radio and TV. And I think you tend to move away from being student centric in that situation. And it becomes agenda centric. You get institutions that try and take that over and it becomes about the dollar. 
But when you've got the individualized training, then that's about the student. And I think that's kind of what we set as a goal here in the Center for Learning and Innovation as being student-centered. A lot of this was directed by federal legislation. So for example, when they decided to give educational television licenses to universities, somewhere in the language surrounding that was a provision that if the university chose to, they could sell their license. Huh. So if it doesn't work out, <laughs> sell your license to a commercial concern and make some money on it. It's just a very kind of sordid past. I mean, you think back to 1728, putting the ad in the newspaper, kind of a pure motivation to help other people, help students learn, and how that's become much more complicated over the years into the internet age when you had for-profit universities who were driven by that profit, mm -hmm. perhaps more than their desire to help their students. So yeah. we need to keep a continuing watch on what we do and what our motivations are as we engage with these new technologies. Mm -hmm. When we look ahead at the way that online learning is being done now, primarily through an exchange, you talked a little bit about synchronous sessions like Zoom. We all have become very familiar with the term Zoom in today's conversations. What's next? Do you think that there's merit in going down the road of more interactivity through like extended reality or things like the metaverse that's having such a heavy investment right now? I think it will be a virtual classroom in their homes with their goggles on, with the same experience that they had 50 years ago sitting in a classroom. So they'll be able actually to look at one another and have conversations. I think that will emerge. It's going to take some time and a lot of creativity in terms of how to make that financially reasonable and instructionally reasonable. But I think that could be the future somewhere down the road. And what gets you the most excited about online learning nowadays? Part of it is, I think, having a teaching a class, for example, I'm teaching right now in the graduate psychology program. So my students are all college graduates who have their own careers in a variety of fields. And the conversations we're able to have about how a certain psychological principle bears itself out in a business or in a hospital or in daily life and to make those connections. So it just adds a high level of richness to the conversations because they are so diverse as learners in terms of their own experiences. Mm. That cross-cultural experience, I think, has been a lot of fun in mm. classes that I've led where I'm teaching them about storytelling, but they come at it from their culture's perspective. And so mm -hmm. yeah, I find a lot of rich conversation that happens because I'm not limited to my locale right. community, right? because I'm not limited to my local community. It's a global community and there's so much more perspective. Absolutely. So we still have faculty members who are online teaching hesitant. What <laughs> advice would you give those faculty members as we wrap up this conversation? 
I think, and again, I think part of that is backlash from the pandemic experience. When people were told, well, we're going to close the campus, you have to go home and figure out how to do your class online. What they were really doing is what has been referred to as emergency remote teaching. Yes. The classes weren't systematically designed. It was just kind of a hodgepodge of what people could get away with in a very short period of time. So I think that's set us back a, a bit in terms of how people feel about online teaching and learning. I would encourage those who are hesitant to partner up with somebody who knows how to do it, sit in on their class, be part of that experience. And I think there are, then we can kind of demonstrate how it should be done. That would be my one suggestion. Give it a try. Partner with somebody you know who knows how to do it. Very good. Well, Brad, it's been awesome talking about some of the history that has led to where we are in online learning today. And I've enjoyed learning some new names and some new facts. I'm sure I'll find ways to weave into conversations later. Very good. Thanks, Mike. <laughs> it's been a pleasure being a guest yeah. on Digital to Learn. Oh, it's good to have you as a guest on Digital to Learn. Thanks for being <laughs> with us today. I will talk to you later. And to those who are tuning in to digital to learn we thank you for your attendance on the podcast please tune in every week as we'll have new topics and new guests all around education teaching and learning thank you so much thank you for joining us on digital to learn if you enjoyed this podcast there are three things we ask you to do one come back and join us again two tell your friends about us and three give us a positive ranking on your favorite podcast platform digital to learn is brought to you by the center for learning and innovation at indiana wesleyan university Embrace the future. Always keep learning.